If you have your copy of God's Word, please open up to, to John 16. I've been reading through a, a children's book with my, with my boys in, in the evenings. It's, it's called The Green Ember by S.D. Smith. It's a wonderful children's series. Uh, it, the main characters are uh, about or are rabbits uh, and uh, the, the dangers that they face. You know how children's stories uh, go. Uh, they use animals uh, and in and, and bringing real life uh, down and, and giving real life experiences to animals. It kind of lessens the, the weight of it uh, a little bit. What do I need to do? Is that a little better? Less ring? There? All right, I'll keep going and we'll see what happens. Uh, but uh, reading this, uh, this story with my, my boys, and there's a part at the, the, the early stage of the, the story where uh, the, the daughter and the son come up to their father and they say, you know, Dad, tell us a story about bravery. And, and the, the father replies, and he says, okay, uh, a story to make us brave. Uh, and he nods his head, and then he he tells them uh, a story, and that, that's really what stories are are able to do. Uh, they are able to give courage and to instill courage uh, within us, and that's wh- that's why you should uh, read your kids good stories uh, about courage, about bravery, and that's also why if you look in in the scriptures, how how many stories are there about courage in the, the Bible itself? There's even what we read this this past month in uh, the book of Joshua, right? The the story of of Joshua going into uh, and conquering the promised land, uh, and he needs courage. He's taken over for Moses. He's going to now be an an invading uh, general, leading the people in. And what's God's message to him at the very beginning of the book? Be strong and courageous, right? We have a myriad of stories of, of Gideon tearing down an idol in, in the night. We have other judges who were, were faithful and, and stood against idolatry in their time. We have David standing against Goliath, Daniel and his three friends standing against a hostile culture and hostile rulers. There are so many stories of courage in the Bible, and, and reading them can instill courage in our hearts and our minds. But I would venture to say most of us are familiar with those stories, and yet we still struggle to have courage. And we, we still often struggle to, uh, to put on courage, and we give in to, to fear. So what is it that is, is missing in our lives? Why do we, why do we not have the, the courage to live as we ought to live in this world. In that same story I mentioned earlier, the, the green ember, as, as the father is speaking with his, his daughter, and she was afraid just about a little thing, but, but he addresses it for what it is. And he says, all of life is a battle against fear. We fight it on one front and it sneaks around to our flank. I thought there was a, a lot of wisdom in that. And, and it's... It's good and appropriate to, at times, take inventory of our fears, because what we fear losing is what we value most. 
So in what ways do we struggle with fear? Are you afraid of, of other people and their uh, opinion of you? Are you afraid of letting others down? Are you afraid of sickness or injury? Are you afraid of, of instability in the world and in your own life? Are you afraid of losing? Maybe you're afraid of losing a game. Some of us are competitive. I won't mention any names because I'll embarrass myself. Are you afraid of losing, but not, not just a game, but maybe you're afraid of losing your job or your health or a loved one? Or maybe you're afraid that, that somebody that you know and love and, and care about, maybe you're afraid that they won't change. You're afraid that they may stay exactly as they are. And, and when we have that fear, what are we tempted to do? To try to go in and manipulate the change. They won't change, so I'll force them to change. Each of us is, uh, is called to be courageous, and each of us struggles with fear. So, so how do we grow in courage? How, how do I model courage to others? If you're, if you're a parent, how do I teach my kids to be courageous, especially our, our young boys? How do we instill within them an understanding of when they need to, to take a stand uh, and fight for a greater good? And that's really what courage is about. Uh, it's preserving a good not just, uh, I want to be courage for the sake of courage. You can be a bully. You can be a courageous bully, right? But that's not preserving what is good. That, that's advancing what is evil. Courage is about preserving what is good. Now, I'm not going to teach exhaustively about courage in the Christian life today, but, but what we are going to study, I think, is, is going to be a foundation for that we are to, to build the courage in the Christian life upon. Uh, and really what we're going to be looking at th- this morning is Christ's final words to the disciples before he is arrested and, and taken to his death. Uh, this is the end of the upper room discourse. We've been in this discourse for, for a while now, ever since the very beginning of John 13. So John 13 through 16, the upper room discourse, Jesus' final teaching, his final lesson to the disciples. Uh, and here at the very end, he's going to be uh, instructing them, yes, that is a purpose of what he is seeking to do. But also he, he wants to give them courage to face what is coming and what is coming is he's going to depart and they're going to be on their own and he's walked them through the the courage that they need to have and why they can have courage and part of that's going to be the spirit's going to come and and help them to lead them and guide them uh, in all the truth we've seen all of these things in in, uh, the previous weeks and months as we as we have studied through this passage but here we, we come to the end of it, and we're going to read uh, this morning and study through John 16, verse 16, through the end of the chapter. So if you uh, have your copy of God's Word, read along with me. This is what Jesus says to the disciples as he winds down his message to them. And then in chapter 17, he's going to turn from them to God the Father, and he's going to pray for them based upon what he has taught them. But these are his, his last words to them before his arrest. He says, A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this that he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. 
Jesus knew that they were wishing to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will cry and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. And on that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made complete. These things I have spoken to you in figures of speech. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you openly of the Father. On that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Behold, now you are speaking plainly or speaking openly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me these things i have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace in the world you have tribulation but take courage i have overcome the world let's pause and pray Heavenly Father, you are our creator, our sustainer, the one who is worthy of all adoration and praise. We thank you for sending your son into this world that he might live and die to save us from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin. And as we study these words this morning, words that your son spoke to his 11 close disciples just before he is about to depart from them, he seeks to give them courage. And I pray that his words to them would also give us courage, that his words to them would be instructive for us, that we might know what you require of us, that you might Teach us and instruct us to to be brave, not because we ourselves are strong, 
but because of your greatness, because of your goodness, and ultimately because of Christ's victory. Help us now to understand that, to behold that, and to live in light of that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, as, as Jesus uh, is just about to, to go into the, his high priestly prayer, and John 17 is truly an amazing chapter where he's going to pray through everything that he's taught them in 13 through 16. He's going to to unfold to the disciples what's going to be taking place in the the coming hours uh, as Jesus is arrested and they run away from him and abandon him. uh, And in the coming days when they're going to see him resurrected and then really in uh, the day of Pentecost as well, 40 days into the future. He's going to be unfolding kind of the the near future for them and telling them what's going to take place and and challenging them, commanding them to be courageous uh, because they know these things and ultimately because Christ has overcome the world. As we as we study this passage, this, the whole passage itself shows us the omniscience of Christ. And he's telling them what is going to happen before it happens. And only God is able to do that. So that is in the, the background. But we're also going to see how Jesus delights to work in the lives of his people. If you think about this, every time God promises a certain uh, Something of how he's going to, what he's going to do in the life of uh, individuals. He's telling us how he works, how he operates. He says, I will do this. He's revealing to us what he likes to do uh, to, to sanctify and to shape us. That's what we're going to, to see of how Jesus is, is promising to be at work uh, in the lives of these disciples and what the results are going to be. And he's going to give them three final promises uh, before he goes to his death. And these, these promises are intended to, to give them courage. Everything that he has said to them on this final night is intended to give them courage. But I think these last three commands and these last three promises especially so. Now, the first promise that we see is in verses 16 to 24. And the promise is of joy uh, after sorrow. In verse 16, we, we saw Jesus speaking of his death and then of his resurrection. That is what is meant when he says, a little while and you will no longer see me. It's probably an, an hour from the time that he's speaking these words that he's going to be arrested and taken from them. So they're not going to see him. And then a little while longer on Sunday morning, they will uh, see him again as, as the resurrected Messiah. That's what is meant in verse 16. In verses 17 and 18, we we hear from the disciples for the first time since chapter 14, verse 22. This is the longest stretch in John's gospel that Jesus alone is is the one speaking. We haven't heard from them since Judas, uh, not Iscariot, uh, asked the question back in chapter 14. And so uh, we finally hear from them again, and they're still confused. They're, they're still not comprehending or understanding what is about to happen. They, they can't wrap their minds around the, this reality that Jesus is going to be taken from them. They believe he's the Messiah, but they don't understand that the Messiah has to die. They don't understand that the Messiah must suffer and then be raised from the dead. They can't comprehend all of that. They're still confused. In, in verse 19, 
Again, points to Jesus' omniscience. Jesus knew that they were what they were wishing to, to question him. Jesus knows uh, their confusion and what is going on in their hearts and in their minds. And so he says, are you wishing to, to, to ask me this? And are you deliberating together about this? Uh, and let, me, let me explain it uh, to you. And, and he, in verse 20, he's going to, to introduce a significant topic. And how do we know he's introducing a significant topic? Well, his favorite introduction is, truly, truly, I say to you. Right? And whenever that is going to be used, there's something important that's going to be uh, following. And he's going to make two contrasts in verse 20. Now, the first of the contrasts pertains to Jesus' death. He says that the disciples will weep and they will mourn. They will lament and just be shedding tears and tears and tears. But the world is going to rejoice. As I said, Jesus is going to be arrested. Judas Iscariot is going to come to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to have Roman soldiers and he's going to have the Jewish temple guard. And they're going to come and they're going to take... uh, Jesus away, the disciples will will scatter and they're going to just weep bitterly at their own denial of Christ, even though they were all saying, we'll follow you to the end. They're going to weep at their own betrayal and then they're going to weep at the death of their friends, their Lord. And the world is going to rejoice. The disciples are, are weeping and the Roman soldiers are mocking. They're, they're casting lots to see who gets his, his clothing. And the Jewish leaders are citing Scripture, mocking Jesus. We saw that when we studied Psalm 22 back in the summer. The world is rejoicing as Christ dies. And the, the disciples are going to be weeping and grieving. Now, that's the first contrast that we see in verse 20. The second contrast pertains to the time of the disciples' sorrow. He says, you will, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will have an end point. It's a wonderful promise, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Right? If you flash forward a couple of uh, pages in your copy of God's Word, look at uh, chapter 20, verse 20. Jesus is appearing to his disciples. We can look at verse 19. So while it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and while the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and he said to them, Peace be with you. And and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then, what did they do? Rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Their their grief was turned to joy when they finally began to, to see what Jesus was talking about. A little while and you will not see me, and then a little while and you will see me. He's laying all of that out for them. Then in verse 21, Jesus gives an illustration of this same pattern of pain and sorrow giving way to overwhelming joy. Verse 21, and I know there's a lot of families in our church that can identify with this even recently. Because he points to the the illustration of a woman giving birth. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has sorrow because her hour has come. And when she, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. I, when there's just uh, so much pain and, and so much uh, sorrow in that, that birthing 
process. You moms, you say lots of things in anger uh, during that time, right? As much said, we don't, we don't hold you to that as husbands. Uh, but, but we feel helpless at the pain that you're experiencing. But then when the baby comes, everybody is just overjoyed. Right. And, and the, the pain and overwhelmingness of that that uh, agony is overshadowed by uh, the, the joy of holding that little one. It's, it's a powerful illustration that Jesus points to. In verse 22, he, he says, you're, you're going to have sorrow now. But I, I love you, but I will see you again. What a promise. And your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Right from that point in time that we read in John 20, verse 20, they're going to rejoice and there's going to be rejoicing from that point forward. They're rejoicing because they, they know and they have beheld the one that they have betrayed has come back. Uh, and he, he lives and he is victor. And there's so much to rejoice over. In verses 23 and, and 24, Jesus speaks about how things will be different in the future once he is raised from the dead. He uses this term, he says, and, and on that day, uh, and here in, in this verse, uh, he's going to be uh, speaking about, so after he is risen from the dead, right, after he is resurrected, uh, everything changes. Right? In that day, after his resurrection, the questions and petitions won't be directed to, to Jesus. They will be directed to God the Father in the name of Jesus. And, and God the Father will delight uh, to, to answer the prayers uh, requested of him in, in Jesus' name. He says, I say to you, if, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. And that's been the pattern of what we've seen uh, in this upper room discourse. Of if you're abiding in Christ and then praying for uh, the glory of God, God the Father delights to answer those prayers. Uh, and you become fruitful as a disciple to the glory of God and for, for our own good. This is that pattern. And Jesus is again hitting on that pattern and the, the overall result is the glory of God and, and the joy in the disciples. Uh, and until that time, the disciples had never prayed in Jesus' name. Right? So when, when Jesus is, is risen from the dead and resurrected, there's, a, there's a, a change overall in the way humanity relates to God the Father. Uh, and uh, the, the resurrection of Christ is going to, to change uh, everything. Uh, and uh, we studied Colossians in our uh, equipping hour this morning. And Colossians 1.18 speaks of Jesus as being the firstborn from the dead. Like, well, what does that mean? Uh, and we, we talked about, yeah, in Colossians when Paul speaks of the firstborn, uh, he's speaking about a, a state in a position of uh, the one who is preeminent. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the firstborn from the dead? That he is the one, he is the preeminent resurrected one. Okay, there's a certain uh, reality that everybody who looks to Jesus in faith is resurrected. Right? Our old self has died and we are raised to newness of life in Christ. And so what Christ has done in going to the cross and rising from the dead, he's creating a new uh, resurrected humanity. Uh, and everybody is different from that point forward. And Christ is preeminent among that resurrected humanity. Uh, and this is the emphasis of when, on that day when Christ is resurrected, things are going to, to change. Verse 24, until now you've asked nothing in my name, and then ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made complete. 
And the, the resurrection of Christ changes everything. This was true for the, for the apostles, and it's going to be true for you and I as well. That the resurrection of Jesus would transform their sorrow to joy because what they thought they understood, they didn't really understand. And all of their grief is transformed over to, to joy. And the same thing is going to be true uh, for all who, who believe the resurrection of Jesus transforms our lives as well. Romans 10 verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, what? It's unique here, right? The emphasis is not on the, the cross. In this verse, Romans 10 9, the emphasis is upon the believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's, it's a faith in not only the death of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ. And trusting in Christ brings forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it also brings joy in this life. The deepest joy. And no matter the, the, the sorrows that you have experienced in this life, and, and I know, I've, I've talked to so many of you. We've all known sorrow to one degree or another. And if you haven't yet, just give it time. No matter the sorrows that you have experienced, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is able to transform and turn those sorrows into joy. Now, how does that happen? Right? It doesn't immediately happen overnight. That, that takes time. If you're going to follow after Christ, He's going to use His Spirit and His Word to transform you. To make you more and more like Him. And over time, as you uh, learn to interpret and respond to life according to the Word of God and the wisdom of God, we begin to experience a deep and abiding joy because we understand life from God's perspective. As we keep our eyes upon Christ, uh, everything begins to to change. Again, that was the whole the whole message of Colossians as we studied this morning. Seek the things that are above. Keep your eyes fixed upon Christ. He is where he is our life and our life is hidden with him in God. That's what we need to to see and understand. Uh, there was a listening to the biblical counseling conference this uh, from this past fall and uh, one of the biblical counselors said this it's it's not my own. I think his name is Sam Stevens, but he says uh we do well when we dwell well. Okay, that when we are in Christ, uh, we begin to, to live well. Things begin to, to go well. Life becomes more in, light, in alignment and harmony with what God is calling us to be and to do. And the cross and the resurrection are going to change everything for the apostles and for us individually. The cross and the resurrection change uh, not only uh, from sorrow to, to joy, but also change the way human beings relate to God. If you, if you keep your, your finger here and turn back to, to Matthew 27, we see this in a, in a powerful and profound way that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin so that all who would trust in him would have access to God. And Matthew 27 and uh, Mark and, and Luke also are going to have the same uh, event recorded. But our access to God being opened up because of what Christ has done uh, is, is portrayed here in Matthew 27, beginning in, if you begin in, in verse 50. 
And, and Jesus cried out. He's on the cross. He cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two. So this, this curtain that uh, kept the, the holy of holies, the presence of God, this curtain that prevented anybody from, from coming in or even seeing it, it was torn in two. And where did the, the, the tear begin? It went from top to bottom, which is profound, right? right? It's a tall curtain. If there was a curtain here in this room, how would we rip it as human beings? I, I, yeah, from the bottom. Like I'm going to start here and I'm going to hopefully kind of gradually just separate it out. But how does it rip from top to bottom? It's God who, who, who tore it asunder. That's the, the picture of what the death and resurrection of Christ have accomplished. We have access to God. And so now we, we are able to come and to pray to God. Well, we have a relationship with him directly because of what Christ has done. And again, in this passage, again, Jesus is encouraging the disciples to pray uh, uh, in faith and that God will answer for his glory and for our joy. Now, this is a profound first promise uh, that uh, for the apostles and for us that that Christ is able to transform uh, sorrow into joy. Uh, and the apostles saw that firsthand just in a matter of days from the arrest of Jesus to the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and we see that over the course of our lifetime. But there's a second promise here in verses 25 to, to 28. There's a promise of, of clarity after confusion. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you in figures of speech. Now, an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you openly of the Father. So Jesus is saying there, there's going to be a, a change taking place here in his communication to the disciples. That in, in his earthly ministry, there were times where he made things abundantly clear, but still at times he was speaking in, in parables and in illustrations. Uh, he wasn't speaking plainly, but he was speaking in, in a veiled way. And he says the time is coming when he's going to speak openly and plainly to them about the Father. And this is directly connected with what we saw last week uh, in chapter 16, verses 12 to 15. In that 12, verse 12, he says, I still have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. That the clarity that is going to come is going to come from uh, the spirit as he sent into the world. And what is fuzzy and unclear now, the disciples will understand without confusion when the Spirit comes upon them in the day of Pentecost. And from that day forward, they're going to be communicating and proclaiming with all boldness uh, the mysteries of Christ that were hidden uh, in the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, he's going to, they're going to be proclaiming all of those things. Then in verse 26, Jesus again refers to a, a day in the future. Right on that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that you uh, that I will request of the Father on your behalf. Uh, and so I think here, when he says on that day, this isn't in the day of the resurrection. A couple of days later, I think this is pointing to uh, the day of Pentecost, uh, when uh, the Spirit comes upon them, and their eyes are going to be opened, and they're going to be filled uh, it, and with the Spirit, and they're going to be able to to see all things uh, clearly. Now, at that point in time, again, human relationships with God have been transformed by the resurrected Christ. And Jesus is now clarifying how the resurrected humanity is going to relate to God the Father. And it's, it's kind of difficult to comprehend what is being said here. On that day, 
you will ask in my name. And then Jesus says, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. You're like, well, why is he clarifying what he's not going to say? Well, what does this mean that Jesus is, is not going to request on my behalf, but I thought he intercedes for me, right? And so uh, the, the emphasis and, and the point here of what Jesus is seeking to do, he's seeking to reassure the disciples uh, that, that God the Father loves them. With, with things changing, uh, they might think that, well, now they, they can't go to God the Father, that they, they only can go to God the Son. He's going to be uh, g- going and going to the Father, but now I only interact with Jesus, and the Father doesn't want anything to do with me. That could be what they begin to, to think. But Jesus is going to say, no, no. Uh, look at the beginning of verse 27, the, the for there, or because... So Jesus uh, is saying, I do not need to request of the Father anything on your behalf because the Father himself loves you. God the Father, uh, now even though Jesus does intercede for his people, the Father would hear us out even just because of his own love for us. Jesus does intercede and he does pray. We rejoice in that. But then verse uh, 27, uh, it also gives the basis for God's love for us. It says, because so the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. So there's this love between God and his people. Yet as believers, we have to understand, and the, the whole rest of the Gospel of John makes this abundantly clear, that even the, the, the love that we have for God and the faith that we have in Christ doesn't come up from ourselves. It comes directly from God as a, as a gift. If you turn back to John chapter 3, as Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, the teacher uh, of the Israel, uh, the most uh, preeminent of Pharisees. John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And that which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. And do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And the idea is being born from above. And none of us is able to uh, be born from above in our own efforts and in our own strength. This is beyond our grasp. And the only answer, the only solution is for us to cry out to God that he would work in our hearts. If you look over at John chapter 6, verse 44. We see this same reality as well. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we're called to to come to Jesus to look to him in faith. But the reality is we're coming to Christ because God is stirring our hearts and drawing us to himself. So we see that Jesus is is teaching them about this future relationship of what is going to take place, that there's the the father still loves his his people uh, and the son's going to to mediate. But that doesn't mean that there's a a huge uh, distance between the the resurrected uh, humanity and Christ and God, the father. And then verse 28, Jesus is is going to give an amazing summary, really, of his entire uh, mission and, and ministry. You might say the whole Gospel of John is summarized in verse 28, right? There's, there's a, it says, Jesus says, I came from God, I came forth from the Father, and he, he's come into the world, right? He came into the world to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, 
and then to be raised on the third day to save humanity. Right? That was his mission into the world. And then he turns around and then he leaves the world. And then where does he go back to? The Father. So he summarizes everything that he has been uh, teaching them, instructing them uh, in verse 28. And this promise being made to the disciples that they're going to understand everything uh, clearly. And all of the, the fuzziness will be turned to, to clarity in the future. Now, there's a, there's a well-known saying that, that hindsight is twenty twenty. Has anybody ever used that saying? Right. Hindsight is twenty twenty, And kind of the emphasis of that is over time, what we gain wisdom. We look back and we know what we should have done and we, and we gain understanding. Now, but Jesus isn't saying here that that life experience is going to improve their vision. Now, he isn't saying that that time alone will help them to understand. The emphasis here uh, is, is upon they're going to have understanding because the Spirit is going to come and dwell within them and lead them in all the truth. So it's not just merely that that time will teach them, but the Spirit is going to teach them, right? If hindsight is twenty twenty, uh, Spirit-informed uh, hindsight is like twenty ten, right? And that's, that, that's far, far better. What's perfect vision? Like twenty. Uh, I guess 2010 would be far better than, than perfect. 2020 is perfect. But, but, but that's the emphasis here, uh, that the, the disciples are going to have a, a greater clarity and be able to understand all things in the future because of the coming Spirit. Now, and, and that movement from confusion to, to clarity uh, is also experienced by every single believer, right? When, we, when we've trusted in Christ uh, in faith, we look backwards at our old lives, what do we begin to see? We see everything clearly. Shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have done that. That was good, and I didn't even realize it. Right? We, we see all of these things uh, w- with a greater clarity because we're, we're, we have uh, not just hindsight, but a, a spirit-led and informed hindsight. Now, and as the Word of God and the Spirit of God work in us, we begin to see all of life clearly. We begin to see God as holy and ourselves as sinners. We, we begin to see Christ as our all-sufficient Savior and Counselor and Lord. And we really begin to see that the, the core issues that we face in life are all related to living in a sin-cursed world. Right? We, we begin to, to see and understand this is how the Bible frames our entire worldview. Right? You and I are sinners, uh, and so we're going to create chaos in our own lives. Right? You and I are around other sinners and a part of a sin-cursed world, so we're also going to be sufferers. Right? Other people are going to, to sin against us. And we've already seen earlier in this same chapter, uh, or in chapter 15, verse 18, that the the world is hostile to those who follow after Christ. So we are sinners, we are sufferers, but we're also, to use a New Testament term, we're also saints, right? We're also called and set apart. We are holy ones who are now supposed to live for Christ and for the glory of God. And the the Word of God and the Spirit of God is going to teach us and to inform us on how we are to live uh, kind of within those three categories as sinners, sufferers, and as saints to the glory of God. So this second promise of clarity after confusion is just as significant as the, the first promise of, of joy after sorrow. And yet there's a third and final promise that is of equal importance. The promise of victory over the world. This is in verses 29 to, to 33. In verse 29, his, his disciples said, Behold, now you're speaking openly and are not using a figure of speech. And now we know that you know all things and 
you have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. And they speak these words just moments after being confused, right? And earlier in this uh, same passage that we're studying, they're like, what is he talking about? What is this? A little while he'll be with, he won't be with us. And a little while he'll be with us. And there, there was all of this confusion. And now they're saying, okay, we understand everything now. Now you're speaking plainly. And, and Jesus' words in verse 31 show his own evaluation of them. Do you now believe? Really? There's a, there's a skepticism and a rebuke there. And Jesus follows up, really, you believe? He doesn't say, oh, really, I know you believe now because you'll walk with me faithfully. I'm just about to be arrested and you'll all come with me to death. Right? If they really believe, that's what they would do. But they're going to be controlled by their fears in a moment. Verse 32 says, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. This is in fulfillment of what was spoken in Zechariah 13, verse 7, that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. And the emphasis even here is not so much that, uh, that Jesus is going to be alone. Like he, he's in dire straits because his sheep have abandoned him. Is that the situation for a shepherd? Like the shepherd's in danger without his sheep? No, that's never the, never the case, right? The sheep are in danger without their shepherd. Uh, and so the, the sheep scatter. It's a greater danger to them than it is to the, the shepherd himself. But then Jesus says, even though you all abandoned me, He's still not going to be alone because who does he say is with him? Yeah. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. What a wonderful truth that we need to cling to as well. In moments of trial and struggle, when it feels like all everyone else has abandoned us or left us aside, who's still with us? God. And so the disciples say, we really do believe now. And Jesus says, really, no, you don't. You're going to abandon me. Not the most encouraging word Jesus has ever spoken, but true. Uh, and, uh, and this is uh, profound. One, one Bible scholar and commentator says that the damping down of an enthusiastic confession of faith might seem surprising if we did not remember that it corresponds to a constant pattern, not only in the fourth gospel, but elsewhere. And it is part of the character and genius of the church that its foundation members were discredited men. It owed its existence not to their faith, courage, or virtue, but to what Christ had done with them. And this they could never forget. So these men who were uh, you know, proclaiming one thing and then they're going to all abandon him. Uh, and Jesus is going to restore these men and use them to be the foundation for the resurrected humanity, for the church. This is how he's going to, to work. And that shows not the, the greatness of these men, but the greatness of Christ. That he's going to be the one who, who's going to, to build his church. He's the cornerstone and he himself is the head that causes all of the growth. And that's the, the emphasis there. He is not alone. The Father is with him. And then verse 33 is just a wonderful capstone to everything that he has said in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. These things I have spoken to you. So that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. 
And so Jesus explains why he's taken all of this time uh, to instructing them and to teaching them. What is, he, what is his desire for them? He wants them to experience peace. And even though that the world is going to be coming after them, even though uh, they're going to be swimming upstream against everybody else, they can have peace because of what Jesus has done. In the world you have tribulation. That's a statement of, of fact. But he says, take courage. He gives them a, a command to obey and a truth to believe. Kind of pointing back a little bit to what we talked about last week of those upstream truths that we need to believe and then the downstream commands. And we have to connect the two. He gives the downstream command first. What command does he give them? He says, take courage. Right? Be firm, be resolute in the face of danger or adverse circumstances. Take courage. Courage. That's the downstream command. But why should they be brave? Why should they be courageous? What's the big picture truth that he sets their hearts and minds upon? It says, I, and it's emphatic in the Greek, I myself have overcome the world. That word for overcome is the idea of winning in the face of obstacles, to be a victor, to be a conqueror. The, the Greek verb, uh, nikao, is where a well-known shoe company gets its name, Nike. Additionally, this, this verb, when he says, I have overcome the world, the, the verb tense there is very unique and it's very powerful. It's a, in a perfect tense, meaning that there was action in the past that has results that last into the present. That Jesus conquered and he is still the conqueror. He is still the victor over the world. D.A. Carson says this, The verb indicates victory. Jesus has conquered the world in the same way that he has defeated the prince of this world. And Jesus' Jesus's point is that by his death, he has made the world's opposition pointless and beggarly. The decisive battle has been waged and won, The world continues its wretched attacks, but those who are in Christ share the victory he has won. They cannot be harmed by the world's evil, and they know who triumphs in the end. From this, they take heart and begin to share his peace. But as Jesus is is saying these words, the disciples are not going to experience peace on that very night. That's going to be probably... The worst night of the disciples' lives. You think about that. They betray their, their friend and, and their Lord. They, they see him arrested. They're going to see him crucified the next day. There's going to be such deep and profound regret in their hearts and in their lives. But after Christ is risen and after Jesus' words here are, come true, right, after he sends the Spirit, if you read the book of Acts, you see courageous men. And, and I would say in the book of Acts, there is no braver men on the face of the earth but these men that Jesus is speaking to right here and right now. They're willing to stand up against the men who crucified Christ. Peter on the day of Pentecost is going to point and stand up in front of them and says, you men of Israel who crucified the Messiah, there's blood on your hands. They speak boldly. When they're confronted later on, they say, well, should we obey you or should we obey God? That there's an understanding from this whole experience of this night of betrayal and the words that Jesus gives to these men here. 
They don't have courage this night, but later on they're going to be willing to face down torture. They're going to be willing to, to face down death because they know that Christ has been victorious over the world. And because Christ is victorious, they can be courageous. Again, uh, what a powerful upstream truth that motivates them to obey the downstream commands. And, and if you think about that, how, you know, how did they grow in, in courage? I don't think it was because they said, I need to be brave. I need to be brave. Right? I don't think it was that. They, they weren't courageous because they were always focused on being courageous. They were courageous because they were convinced of Christ's victory, of Christ's power, of his life, death, and resurrection. They were convinced that they needed to go forth. They weren't seeking, their aim was not just to go and be courageous, their aim was to go and speak the truth. But, but they, they were courageous because they had convictions. And I would say this, spiritual courage requires spiritual convictions. There's a lot for us to, to, to wade through there. But they were convinced of spiritual truths, and they were going to stand on those truths regardless of what anybody else said, regardless of what anybody else thought. They were willing to preserve the good, again, as true courage always does. So Jesus closes out his instructions to these uh, 11 apostles, and just before he's arrested and crucified, he gives them these promises that they're to, to believe and to, to act upon. And, and these are worthy of our meditation this week. Because I think each, each one of these promises is able to, to instill courage in our hearts. Right? Do we believe that sorrow and suffering in this life as we follow after Jesus? Do we believe genuinely that if we suffer for christ in this life that that sorrow all of that sorrow not some of it not most of it but all of it will be turned to joy when he returns when we are in his presence do we believe that am i willing to believe the things that i don't understand with full comprehension and full clarity now am i willing to still walk in obedience trusting that my confusion now will turn to clarity later and that i'll still be rewarded for obedience now? Am I willing to trust in that? And then do I really genuinely believe that Christ has overcome the world? Do I have peace and courage that comes as a result of that? I mean, that's a really easy thing. Do you want to assess yourself if you really believe that Christ has overcome the world? Take inventory of your life. Do you have peace and do you have courage? Right? Because if you genuinely believe that Jesus has been victorious over the world, that's the, the fruit that crops up in our lives. That's what will take place. So meditating upon these truths that we've seen today, this will give us courage. If we believe them, we will be courageous in our day-to-day -day life. It'll give you courage to get out of bed in the morning, to work at home, to work at our jobs for God's glory, to teach, to disciple, and when necessary, to discipline our kids, to, to do all of the, the little things that we struggle to do. Because we have spiritual convictions. I got a notification on my phone yesterday that Jim Elliott, who died in, in 1956 on the mission field in, in Ecuador, he's seeking to go to an unreached people group. And he died in 1956, but on October 28th, which was yesterday, 
October 28, 1949, he wrote this in his journal. It says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Right? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. Speaking of his life. I can't keep my life. Try as hard as I might. I'm going to die one day. I'm not able to keep it. So a fool tries to, to hold on to that, what he cannot keep. But he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain. So he gives up his life to gain what he cannot lose. Eternal rewards in heaven. There's an understanding there. And there's a courage that came out of that, right? He's willing not only to, to be courageous in going out to the mission field, but, but to go to an unreached people group and willing to, to be courageous in facing death, hostile Indians, and being willing to accept spears and death willingly so that others might hear the gospel. That's courage. And where does that courage come from? Right? And is that type of courage possible for you and I to experience? Some of us doubt that we can be courageous in that way. But I would say we can absolutely be courageous in that way. Why? Because the same spiritual truths that he meditated upon and were motivated by are accessible to us. What will happen if we meditate upon those same truths and if we're motivated by those same truths? That Christ is victor over the entire world. And because of that, we can have joy, we can have peace. I can be courageous in going and living for him. That would be the fruit in our lives. That's the, the hope. And I think that's what Christ is seeking to instill, not only in, in these 11 apostles who are going to go out and be the foundation for uh, the, the new church, but also for, for each and every one of us. As we follow after Christ, am I willing to be courageous? And if I'm going to be courageous, what, what does my heart need to meditate upon? The bigger eternal truths, the bigger picture of Christ's victory. Amen? We're, we're, I'm going to pray. It's going to be a quick prayer. And I know I'm, I'm over, but I want to sing a song that you'll be familiar with. Uh, it's a song about Christ's victory and really not only about his first coming, but also his, uh, his second coming. But let's go to the Lord in prayer.